around the center of town in Kyiv, an act of terror. As a 40-mile Russian military convoy advances towards Ukraine's second largest city, 200 U.S. troops arrived in Germany to form part of NATO's eastern flank. Deborah Alperone reports. Explosions rocked a government building in Kharkiv Freedom Square and nearby residential areas Tuesday morning. Ukraine officials say several were killed and many injured. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky called the strike an act of terror, saying there were no military targets in the area. The assault on Ukraine's second largest city comes as Russia's 40-mile military convoy rolls closer to the capital city of Kyiv. Crowds packed Kyiv train station to flee the city as the biggest ground war in Europe since World War II entered its sixth day. It's a big tragedy for me to leave my city and actually I don't know am I going to come back or not. Russia is finding itself increasingly isolated by tough economic sanctions, disapproval among world leaders, and in a sign of solidarity, European Union ambassadors at a UN conference walked out with Ukraine when Russia's foreign minister began his address. A new CBS News poll shows that Americans are concerned about a wider war, but President Biden is downplaying Vladimir Putin's decisions to put nuclear forces on alert. Mr. President, should Americans be worried about nuclear war? No. 200 American troops landed in Germany Tuesday. They are part of NATO's eastern flank. Their arrival comes as Russia's defense minister says it will continue its Ukraine operation until its goals are achieved. Deborah Alperone, CBS News, the White House. Russia's defense ministry warned it will strike targets in Kyiv belonging to Ukraine's security service and special operations unit. A talks between the two countries Monday did not result in an end to the fighting, but the two sides agreed to meet again in the coming days. Heritage site, usually a hub for tourists. But now it's a hub for thousands of Ukrainians trying to flee the war in central and eastern Ukraine. Every day, thousands and thousands of people from different cities. Is my heart completely revived? Your heart is broken. Small children, two, three, five years. And Sadovi said, with so many entering the city, there is worry about what he called saboteurs. Security services have already arrested 10 people. They haven't done anything bad yet, but they wanted to. They wanted to blow up a power substation. And there were also some sabotage activities near the blood donation hospital. That is not a military operation. It seems they're committing acts of genocide. Who were these people, as you understand them, and um, under whose orders were they operating? We have special police dealing with them. As I understand, they have been paid a hefty amount for it. By the Russian government? I think yes. Who else? Russian uh, troops attack civil uh, citizens and hospitals and uh, schools. Every day, three, four, five time alarm and missile from uh, Black Sea or Belarus. Are you worried that Lviv could be the next Russian target? All Ukrainian cities are targets right now. We cannot predict what's in the mind of a person that attacks small children. We maximum uh, prepare citizens to war. 
support would you like from the West? Less talking, more doing. I listening about sanction last one, two, three year, months. We are deeply concerned, blah, blah, blah. Russia kill children, women. Russia oligarchs must feel very strong sanction and very strong position. Today, one part democratic world, next part totalitarian world. Today, we told about future. Today, we building, we creating our future. Today, Ukrainian people, David, attack Goliath. David attacks Goliath. Yes. Right outside the mayor's office, one of David's platoons, an assembly line of civilians crafting camouflage nets for Ukraine's military. Young people who already embraced a European future. And grandparents born Soviet now embracing Ukraine. Jan Pasinaya is 67. Her granddaughter Maria Tigar is 13. When I was born in the Soviet Union, we were united. I never felt the borders between nations. Today, I have hatred for those who started it all. I feel sorry for all Ukrainians because I'm a Ukrainian as well, and I'm proud of that. I was uh, raised in a freedom, uh, in a free country, and uh, I think freedom is very important. And now Russia is trying to take our freedom. The family lives in Kyiv. On Thursday morning, Russians shelled their home, forcing them to flee. We packed all our stuff in 15 minutes, and we, uh, we left our house uh, locked, and I don't know when we will come back. How do you think one person doing something here in Lviv can help Ukraine take on Russia? If one person starts doing something extraordinary and something uh, that can actually help if many people do it. The society is, is power, and if we deliver a message to society, uh, it will respond. If Ukraine is David and Russia is Goliath, do you believe, do you have faith that Ukraine can win? I believe, and today a lot of people from the world believe to Ukraine. It is our victory. Ukraine is miles from that victory, but social media is full of examples of courage and heroism by ordinary citizens. You saw that video from Kharkiv, not of a tank man, but a tank squad taking on the Russian military, and they are led, Judy, by Zelensky, who got two standing ovations during his speech to European Parliament just the spirit of these uh, ordinary Ukrainians, Nick. You've been talking to U.S. officials at the same time, Nick. What are they telling you about the state of the Russian operations? Yeah, a senior U.S. official confirms to me report uh, of Russians having serious logistical problems inside Ukraine uh, and cites some examples of some Russian troops not having food inside Ukraine, some examples of Russian troops not getting paid back home, uh, and of course leaving vehicles behind, and we've seen those uh, on videos, especially in eastern Ukraine. Uh, officials believed uh, before this campaign began uh, that there would be some kind of shock and awe campaign uh, against Kyiv, and they say they simply have not seen 
that, at least not yet. They, of course, praise Ukraine's resistance and Zelensky himself. But, Judy, there is still a lot of fear tonight. There will be more bombings, more amphibious assaults landing uh, in southern Ukraine, uh, and more troops to come and more days like we saw today. A lot of fear. Nick Schifrin uh, reporting from Lviv. Thank you, Nick. Like the United States and the rest of the NATO countries, the United Kingdom is not sending troops to fight in Ukraine. Prime Minister Boris Johnson confirmed that stance during a press conference today. But Johnson has called for Western nations to continue to supply weapons to Ukraine. For more on the Russian attack and the global response, Anna Navaz is on Capitol Hill, speaks to the UK's ambassador to the United States. That's right, Judy. For more on that international response and the effort to deter Russia, I'm joined by Dame Karen Pierce. She is the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States. Ambassador Pierce, welcome back to the News Hour. Thank you for joining us. I'd like to begin by asking for your assessment for the latest on the ground. You heard my colleague Nick Schifrin reporting there. It seems that Russian advance has stalled, but we've seen those satellite images, that column of tanks and Russian troops approaching Kyiv. Based on what you've heard, how concerned are you about a major Russian assault ahead? I think it's true that the Russians are finding it much harder going than they had ever expected or planned for. Uh, that's partly because of the fantastic heroic resistance uh, that your correspondents are, are seeing and, and showing to us. And it's very moving and it's very inspiring. Uh, but I think we do also have to remember uh, the might of the Russian army uh, and the fact that they continue to move on Kharkiv and on Kiev. And I think that in coming days, we will probably see an intensification of the fighting from the Russians. And that's obviously uh, very concerning. It's a harder task than they thought. And there are, are reasons to be uh, encouraged by that. But I think in the end, the overwhelming uh, military might of the Russian forces will sadly lead to a bad result. So let me ask you about the United Kingdom's support so far, because so far you've backed Ukraine with humanitarian aid and economic support, but also with defensive weapons. And just yesterday, Prime Minister Boris Johnson said uh, to President Zelensky that the UK will provide more military support in the coming days. So what will that look like and when will it go? Uh, that's right. We, um, we've already sent supplies, particularly uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, but I want to stress that these are defensive weapons, uh, so the Ukrainian military can defend their country uh, against the Russian aggression. We are supplying non-lethal equipment like body armor uh, and a few more things that armies regularly need. Um, we're looking at other equipment, defensive equipment, that we might be able to provide. Uh, British troops are there uh, on the borders on in the NATO country, but helping to get military supplies uh, into the Ukrainian military now. Can I ask, on the provision of even those defensive weapons, though, we've heard from some experts some concerns that even as those are being moved or stored in neighboring countries, how worried are you about Russian interdiction, about them possibly striking some of those weapons or storage facilities and taking this battle outside of the Ukrainian borders? Um, nothing the Russians might do would, would um, sadly surprise me at, at this stage, to be absolutely honest. Uh, but we are doing our best to get the supplies into Ukraine uh, through safe channels, uh, through areas where we don't believe the Russians are, are operating. Uh, I won't say exactly where those are for fear of facilitating uh, a, a bad result. Uh, but we are trying our best to help with 
uh, the forward movement of, of all these supplies. Uh, we've sent 2,000 uh, weapons from Britain. Uh, NATO allies are also sending uh, supplies. And as I say, we're doing our best to get them through to where they're needed. Madam Ambassador, I'd like to ask you about the sanctions, and particularly back in the United Kingdom, your foreign secretary has said that you will be targeting oligarchs' properties and possessions. We know that many rich Russians have been buying up real estate, sending their children to British schools for years. Does that mean that you'll be seizing some of those assets in the coming days? Um, we have something called unexplained wealth orders, which enable us to um, seize illicit uh, assets, and so those will be in force. We're uh, revoking our visa investor scheme, uh, so that will also uh, have an effect. We have sanctioned individual uh, oligarchs and those close to Putin, and we will be introducing an economic crime bill that will give us more powers to go after these illicit assets. Finally, I'll ask you, you've mentioned that you hope that the oligarchs around Putin are talking to him and, and pressuring him. Do you believe that Putin is listening to those around him at this moment? Is he isolated or getting reliable information? I think that's a really good good question. Um, I don't think we know uh, for sure. We know that some of Putin's uh, inner circle have been personally uh, discomforted, uh, if not worse, by, by what's happening uh, on the sanctions. Um, does President Putin listen uh, to it? I don't know uh, who in the Russian system can speak frankly to him and give him a very honest and frank assessment of the difficulties the Russians are encountering uh, in their aggression towards Ukraine and what is going wrong with their plan. Uh, but I do hope he is getting those briefings because he needs to recalculate. He needs to stop the tanks that are there. And as Boris Johnson said in Poland, he needs to turn the tanks around and he needs to choose a path of peace. That is Dame Karen Pierce, the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States, joining us tonight. Madam Ambassador, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs>
Nations Refugee Agency estimates around 650,000 Ukrainians have so far fled the neighboring countries. Thousands have been arriving at a Poland train station seeking safety from Russia's invasion, trying to stay warm in the freezing cold temperatures that are uh, in Ukraine right now. Our senior, uh, CNN senior correspondent, Sarah Sider, joins you now live from the border of Ukraine and Poland. Sir, you've been... Uh, Showing us really remarkable scenes of volunteers, people who have come out, Polish people, people from Germany, all around the region, to help these Ukrainians who are pouring over the border. It is an incredible show of support, um, of humanity, if you will, Anderson. Uh, I'll give you another quick look at this. Um, this is volunteerism at its absolute best. This is not a government-led situation this is people who got online gathered together some of them do not know each other some of them are strangers but they have been here day in and day out doing just what you're watching now offering food offering drinks offering a hot cup of coffee offering uh, a hot soup trying to make sure that people feel welcome there was even a sign when we first got to the train station uh, one of the very first stops that you end up at when you leave uh, the border of ukraine into poland and there there were signs up that said ukrainians we are waiting for you here in poland welcome to poland so it is open arms uh, for many refugees i do want to give you a another look because we talked about this earlier at some of the other things that are going on here so what you are seeing are tents set up and you've you've seen this anderson in the many times that you have uh reported from any kind of disaster situation right uh you see tents and these tents have been set up uh, they have been set up so that people can get warm, so that people can uh, can can sleep in, at some point in time. Um, look at what is, I mean, people are bringing whatever they could muster. Uh, these are the meager belongings of folks who have left their entire lives behind, as we have seen so many times when war comes to a country, when refugees are created because some greedy despot wants to take something over so we are seeing this over and over again and here we are again anderson in 2022 and war is being perpetrated on a people who did nothing to provoke it all they're trying to do now is survive and eventually go home but they just don't know when that's going to be and there are so many i mean this is women uh, and children who have had a long journey just to to get to to that spot i mean just getting out of ukraine for women and children is extraordinarily difficult it can take days and days and days um train rides bus rides walking long distances in the freezing cold sleeping outside at times when we crossed over from the border from poland uh, i think it was yesterday or two days i guess yesterday morning uh, I mean, there were hundreds of people waiting. There was a, a, a elderly man who we're told had died at the border checkpoint uh, from making the journey. Uh, I don't know if it was a heart attack or exhaustion, um, but he was covered with a, a tarp. It, it is just a chaotic scene. Uh, I'm wondering, where do the people go from there? I mean, are Ukrainians allowed to then go into Poland? I know there was a bus to take people to Berlin uh, from German volunteers. What happens to them from here? I'm glad you asked. Uh, let me come over here and see if I can get you a picture. Uh, the buses, for the most part, have just left. But if you look just behind me, you'll see, like, a truck pulling up. People are literally coming from their homes. People in Poland are saying, hey, do you 
need a ride? Do you need a ride to Krakow? Do you need a ride here? Do you want to come to my home and stay with me? That's happening in this country. So yes, Ukrainians are being offered a place to stay in people's homes. Uh, and the government is saying, hey, you can come in. They, are, they aren't even at some points checking papers. And they're allowing now children on their own to be able to come out of Ukraine and into Poland. And you just talked about what you saw uh, on the border. And we saw something very similar, which is heartbreaking. We saw a 15-year-old girl who says she had just crossed over from Ukraine by herself to meet her mother who had come from, uh, I think she had come from uh, Belgium. And so she had showed up from Belgium she, to meet her daughter. And all of a sudden, I look over and the mother has fainted. No pulse. She had... Uh, no, she wasn't breathing. Uh, there were medics there from Israel who had shown up to volunteer uh, from an organization that's similar to Doctors Without Borders called Rescuers Without Borders. And they were literally working on this woman on the freezing cold ground and trying to revive her. And by God's grace, she was revived. The medics got her breathing again. She had a very light pulse, but the daughter is standing there and wondering what she's supposed to do. You can see the panic and the, the heartache, and she's crying and talking on the phone, trying to figure out, what do I do now? Because now they're taking her mother to the hospital. Finally, an ambulance came about 30 minutes later, and, and, and the daughter's standing there going, I, I, I don't know what to do. I, what do I do? My, my mother, I, I want to go home. So it's a, it's a really, really, really depressing and difficult situation, but you do have one thing. You have some light, all of these volunteers who care about these people. Um, let's just kind of talk about what's taken place over the last 12 hours or so. It has been a brutal day of shelling attacks um, across the country there. Um, you had a TV tower um, in Kiev hit by Russian forces. According to Ukraine's interior ministry, at least five people were killed there. Um, there's this video showing smoke surrounding uh, the tower there. Um, there was also surveillance video showing an explosion at a regional government building. The interior ministry saying at least 10 people were killed there. How, how is the government today, right now, at this hour, uh, responding to these assaults? I think it was a big development, the TV tower getting hit. By the way, when we talk about civilian casualties, we're going to be using the phrase at least an awful lot because yeah. the reality is we don't have a good picture on how many civilians have been killed across the country, right? We just don't know. I mean, the city of Kharkiv, all the way in the northeastern part of the country, is being shelled right now heavily, and there is heavy fighting there. So. People are dying. That is the reality. How is the government reacting? When those TV stations went down again, I think that was a big moment here because for six days now, the Ukrainian people and journalists included, we've been getting a lot of our information off Ukrainian television. We know, of course, this is what they want us to see. We know that it is its own form of propaganda, but it was a way of Zelensky to communicate with the Ukrainian people without any interruption on television. He will still use Telegram. He'll still be able to use his social media access. But this was one of those first things that we thought maybe we would see at the beginning of the war. We thought maybe the Russians would take out the communications. They would take out the television. They've done it today. Curious why on day six, but I, I think it'll have an effect, yes, for sure. So talk to me about Zelensky, as you just mentioned, Tim, right, communicating um, with the public there. We, we know at the beginning of this whole thing, actually, he, he tried to address and or communicate with, with the Russian people to reach out to them and obviously been communicative yeah. through social media as well uh, with the Ukrainian people there. I'm speaking with the European Parliament. I'm saying we are literally, himself included, fighting for our lives. And we are seeing that in every story told. Um, tell us more as to what we heard from him. Boy, and he, 
he has struck this chord with the Ukrainian people and with the world, I think. And, and, and talk about a leader who has literally risen from the ashes. I mean, this is a man who is seen on morning television drinking coffee in a trench with the soldiers of the Ukrainian army, a man who, according to the government, is actually leading and helping to plan the resistance um, of the capital. He gave this impassioned speech today. At one point, the translator even, even breaking up. You're going to hear it, uh, I think, in this clip here. Take a little bit of a listen to what he had to say today. Square, can you imagine this morning two cruise missiles hit this Freedom Square? Dozens of killed once. This is the price of freedom. Do prove that you are with us. Do prove that you will not let us go. Do prove that you indeed are Europeans. And then life will win over death and light will win over darkness. Glory be to Ukraine. Emotionally, that's, that's where the Ukrainian people are. I mean, I see it every day here in the city of Lviv. People are completely emotionally exhausted. I'm not even just talking about folks that come from Kiev and Kharkiv where the shelling is heavy, but it's hard to imagine, but it's true even here when the sirens go off five or six times a day, it rattles people. People run to the bomb shelters. They run back. Um, and so this is a nation that is exhausted. This is a nation that is at war. And they're feeling very well represented by their president. Six days in. Um, and we don't even know how much longer this is actually going to go on. Or again, what the end game is here. Today I saw a quote, I believe, from Michael Mispal saying, listen, Vladimir Putin gets Kiev, And then what? And then what is he actually going to do with that city? And then what does the future of that country look like? You were speaking with folks, as you mentioned. I want to pull on this thread a little bit. Um, uh, inside of a camp there in Lviv. That's supposed to be the safe zone, right? 30 miles or so, I believe, um, from the Polish border. Um, what did they have to say about their experiences so far? You know, and, and you and I have been talking about this now for, for the better part of a week, right? That, that um, maybe Putin won't uh, attack here, that the Russian army won't come here because it's, it is so close, uh, not only to the border with Europe, but to the border with NATO. Um, and I was talking to a 12-year-old girl today who spoke perfect English. She went to school in Canada, and she looked at me and my whole crew, and she said, you don't think the war will come here? It could very easily come here. And it was like, wow. I mean, this is the way people are thinking here. They have no idea how wide this war is going to get. In addition to that, you have this civilian-led, Herculean effort to try to get supplies to both to the front, but also to help refugees who have come here. And it's like everybody now serves a dual role as either a volunteer and a soldier, as a doctor and a soldier, a medic and a soldier teacher and a soldier. I had a chance to speak to a volunteer. I asked him sort of to explain to me what was going on. Here's, a, a, again, a little bit of his story. And this is a tragedy. And this is a Putin's fault that we are now at war. And the people are dying. And the children's children are dying. And uh, I believe in the end, and the whole territory, the whole, the whole Ukrainians believe that we will uh, we will win this war. If you have to fight, will you fight? Yeah. The first and second day we were here, we would ask people what were their reactions were to the war, and there was such a marked difference between that and now, between the war has arrived for your country and the war has arrived for you. And I think almost a week into this war, as you speak to people individually, you're seeing that the war has arrived for them. It is affecting their personal lives. It has touched everyone's life now in this country, yes. 
And they're probably asking, will we ever be able to go home? And what will that home look like? Who will it be governed by? Um, as always, Cal Perry, my friend, you and your team stay safe. Um, thanks for joining us this hour. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Follow today. UN officials say there are currently 660,000 Ukrainian refugees in neighboring countries, and that number is rising by the hour. NBC News Now anchor Tom Yamas joins us now from the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. Tom, good morning. Joe, good morning to you. You know, we've been telling you so much about the civilian effort to take on the Russians when it comes to the battlefield. Well, there's also a civilian effort to help out each other. Just behind me here, this is one of the major depots where people are coming to volunteer and hand out supplies. Those bags are filled with water, with food, with winter clothes. They're going to the regions that are war-torn all across this country because so many people are struggling right now. They need supplies immediately. So people are working here 24 hours a day, right around the clock. Uh, they're not stopping to help their fellow countrymen. Here in western Ukraine, where a humanitarian crisis is unfolding, the city of Lviv increasingly on edge. Volunteers manning checkpoints to keep out Russian saboteurs. We're looking for enemy documents, maps, GPS. And you feel you, you have to do this, right? You have to protect yeah, your town? Yeah, absolutely. My child here, my wife here, and I must be here and protect my family and my city. These checkpoints have been running 24 hours a day since the war started. For many of the smaller towns, these are the frontline defense. Right. They have things like these tire spikes to stop cars. And for bigger vehicles, like say a Russian tank, they have what they call hedgehogs. They hope these can at least slow down those larger military vehicles. And if Russian forces arrive, ordinary citizens ready to fight back. Men like Igor have been working around the clock, making thousands of Molotov cocktails. All Ukrainians from kids of six years old to the old uh, persons uh, from uh, 60, 70 years old uh, are in the condition of war. Meanwhile, the mass exodus continues. Border crossings and train stations packed with mothers and young children. Families trying to get to safety while coping with the heartbreak of separation. This man putting his pregnant wife on the train for Poland while Yevhenia, traveling with her young daughter, is leaving behind her husband. So hard and so scary about, about my husband. I don't want to say goodbye. Do you think the Russians are going to come here? Yes. Despite the odds, many in Lviv say they refuse to give up hope bringing food and clothing for those who've lost their homes and come here to seek shelter and safety. We are sending a message that we are not alone and we can help each other and we are together. And if you notice something just behind me, the Ukrainians who are helping out here, they're of all ages here. You have mothers, you have children, you have teenagers, everyone coming together. We actually just spoke to a college student who was studying at the uh, university in Kiev. He obviously can't go to school anymore, but he can fight. And he said he wanted to come here to help uh, before the Russians get here. Of course, they're still in the eastern part of the country. We're in western Ukraine right now, but everyone here trying to do their part to help their country. Guys, so back to you. Examples of community, of resilience, and of bravery. Tom, thanks so much for that report. Now, over in the capital, Kyiv, Ukrainians are nervously eyeing a massive Russian military convoy advancing toward the city. That's as Russia intensifies its bombing campaign over in Kharkiv. NBC News Chief Foreign Correspondent Richard Engel has more from the capital.
Kiev this morning is staring down the barrel of a Russian assault column that's reportedly up to 40 miles long. Satellite images confirm it's big, deadly, and dangerous, with hundreds of armored vehicles, tanks, and towed artillery, and that it's heading toward the capital of three million people. Russia seems to be changing tactics. So far, Russia has been using small group attacks with incursions into towns and cities, which the Ukrainian military has been able to repel with brave and determined resistance. What's coming looks more like old, blunt Russian siege warfare. It's already happening outside of Kiev, with Russian forces attacking Mariupol in the south, home to a half million people, with tragic consequences and disturbing images emerging. A six-year-old girl next to her parents at a supermarket was hit by a shell. She was rushed to an ambulance, alive, but just clinging. At the hospital, her injuries proved too much. Show this to Putin, a doctor told a camera from the Associated Press. The eyes of this child and crying doctors. In Kharkiv, Ukraine's second city, more siege and assault. Russia pounding the city center and its administrative building in ways that appear indiscriminate, including Ukrainian officials and a human rights group alleged with banned cluster munitions. Russia denies the accusations. Russia's President Volodymyr Zelensky overnight saying the Russians targeted residential sections of the city, calling it a military crime. But Ukrainians are not being cowed. Russian troops did capture the small port city of Berdyanka. But residents came out and shouted down the armed Russians. Berdyank is Ukraine, they yelled. The Russian troops seemed surprised and held their fire. In Kiev, those staying behind are readying themselves for street fighting with sandbag checkpoints manned by armed volunteers and with seemingly endless supplies of Molotov cocktails. They have no chance to get into our city, into our country. So that's why they should leave. So they will, will be all dead. That's the solution. Us or them. As Ukraine braces for a new, possibly even more brutal chapter of this unprovoked war. The U.N. says it has documented 136 Ukrainians killed so far, including at least 12 children. But the real death toll is feared to be much higher. Richard Engel, thank you so much. A grim situation is developing in a Ukrainian town that's putting hundreds of children in danger. Yeah, two orphanages in the town of Nikolaiva in southern Ukraine could be cut off from government funding as Russian forces close in around the area. The lack of resources could lead to a dire food shortage. Mark Davis is the founding director of Abundance International, which runs the two orphanages, and he joins us now from Ukraine. Mark, good morning. First, thank you thank so you. much for being with us in these tough times. And just first, tell us, how are you, how are the children in these two orphanages doing right now? Thank you for asking, letting us share the story, because the story of the orphans has been missing over the last months leading up to the story. And right now, there's a lot of fear and confusion um, imagine the trauma for the orphanages we work with. They're zero to four years old, and a third of them are special needs, disabled, Down syndrome kids, which cannot understand what the noises are, but more the trauma of them being ushered down to a bomb shelter to have to sit every time the sirens go off. And the doctors who, who help run the facilities are assuring that we'll give them psychological care afterwards, but it's not right. These kids don't deserve that. And immediately when we saw this happening, I put together with uh, Adam Lyons, who does um, 
business planning, a way to try to expand the help here and across to other orphanages. So what we're doing at AbundanceInternational.org is taking donations from people who love and care and want to see these kids cared for. We are finding resources because this orphanage here, we were down to one week of food supplies left. And we scrambled, and God bless the people here. They were so helpful. The grocery stores were helpful. They let us go to the front of the lines. We're finding it, and now we're getting requests all across the country. We're trying to give aid because these places can't leave. People keep asking us, can't you get the kids out of the country? I go, how do you take kids with disabilities who are on critical medical attention in bus rides and war zones? We have to be able to survive until the roads are clear, until it's safe to do something else. Here you've seen the video. This is the bomb shelter, an entire orphanage brought down here. These kids don't understand it. And in the audio, you'd hear the crying. And God bless the nurses and the nannies for just trying to be that calm, loving voice down here. And I want to thank everybody. The outpouring of love, the giving that's been happening at AbundanceInternational.org has, has been tremendous. And it's making a difference. And we are able to get the money right now to the orphanages. I can use my debit card to buy things. And until the banking system gets shut off, we have a window of time to get as much aid as we can to these kids who really can't leave. They're here stuck in a war zone, and we need to care for them. God bless everyone who's helping right now. Mark, are there, are, is there Ukrainian support nearby, and do you have any indication that Russian forces are anywhere near where you are? Of course. Uh, again, I'm not going to get into the military thing. I'm just going to tell you what I see. For the last four days in a row, we've had uh, sirens, we've had explosions, we've had active conflict, we've had death, we've had military people. Um, the Russians have not taken the city. I don't. I have not personally seen any of them. I have not personally seen any tanks, but there are plenty of videos of people who have been watching the battles and trying to keep them back as more of the fighting has happened in the neighboring city of Kherson, where we also have an orphanage, and that entire orphanage is having to live in the basement of a church. Just haunting to hear you say, if you could hear the audio on this video, we would hear these children crying. Mark, tell us sort of what your plan is, because I think it might also sort of illuminate kind of what a lot of people who are stuck are thinking. You are caring for these children who cannot leave, as you point out, due to the medical care that they need in this facility. They can't be in a bus for days stopping on dangerous highways. But what ultimately are the people of Ukraine thinking right now? Is it to be in these bomb shelters and to, as you use the word, survive currently through this attack? And then it would be... To leave, what are you thinking? What is your plan for these children? Honestly, the best thing, even for those who have evacuated and are in Poland, a lot of the Ukrainians go, I just want the dust to settle and come back home. People love Ukraine. They love their cities. They're very patriotic. There's no reason for these kids to have to go anywhere else. Now, I do have another breaking story where one of the children has been um, approved for adoption. The mother was two months away from coming and picking it up, and she's paranoid and freaked out. How is my child doing? And they're separated from this child they're about to adopt. So there are many things that will happen. But right now, we've got to get past this immediate crisis the immediate war and see what's on the other side but the honest answer is if we can keep supporting these they're given amazing wonderful medical care loving environments and a good start at life right here and then the hopes of because of people like you helping to get the word out we will have when the dust settles more people wanting to adopt these beautiful babies and give them good good homes mark real quickly we want to let people know one more time what is the best way for them to help you and the children out right now Right now, the giving uh, is, is absolutely helpful. Abundanceinternational.org. 
we can use the funds here and we can get them to orphanage directors. We can help. We're building a network across the country of people who can also deliver goods to them. So I'm, I'm pleased with the effort. It's overwhelming, but it's very rewarding. And your gifts, please, they make a difference. Abundanceinternational.org. Thank you so much. And we will keep up to date with you the status of these and what's happening with all of these, these gifts. Thank you so much. We, your love is felt. Trust me. Please, please do keep us updated. We're thinking of you, Mark. We're thinking of the kids. We're thinking yeah, of we everyone are. helping those kids right now. Thank yeah, you. God bless you and what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Feeling supported. From Moscow. Hey, Kier, good morning. Hey, Savannah, good morning to you. And we're less than a mile away from the Kremlin, but we may as well be a million miles away from that place where President Putin is isolated and holed up. This is Europe Square. We wanted to bring you here to show you. Behind me there is the Europe Mall. You can see the big-name brands being advertised on the front of that mall. But like Domino's, companies have been cutting their ties to this part of the world. People have been telling us they don't want to be disconnected from the West. And you see those flagpoles there? Those are the flags of Europe still flying. President Putin under increasing pressure on multiple fronts, militarily, with his forces facing unexpectedly stiff resistance in Ukraine. Politically, with protests across Russia and thousands of arrests, and economically, the Russian ruble falling to a record low. The Russian stock market suspended all week with fears it could crash. The Russian leader growing increasingly frustrated and, according to U.S. officials, is lashing out and isolated, meeting with his bankers and finance ministers at a distance. Even his military chiefs are not allowed too close. When dictators hold on for too long, they overreach, they get disconnected from reality, they don't listen to their advisors. That's exactly what's going on here. Senator Marco Rubio, who sits on the Intelligence Committee, tweeting, it's pretty obvious to many that something is off with Putin. He's always been a killer, but his problem now is different and significant. And there are early signs of panic among his people, with lines at banks. Outside a mall, a line of cabs. Drivers telling me business collapsed a week ago. Inside, we find another line at an ATM, many hoping to withdraw dollars or euros. We meet musicians, Marina, who lived in Boston for six years, and Natalie. Everyone's scared now. My husband was trying to buy foreign currency yesterday. He didn't get a chance to do that. Couldn't get any? No. Caught between Russian government crackdowns and sanctions. They're already shutting down the Facebook. Everybody's talking about Instagram being shutting down, shut down. And they fear a new iron curtain between Russia and the West. I don't know. Uh, how can I get my visa? And this morning, indications of concern among the oligarchs who surround President Putin. Billionaires known for yachts, private jets, and mansions. A spokesperson for Roman Abramovich, estimated by Forbes to be worth $13 billion, and who owns Britain's Chelsea Football Club, saying he's now involved in peace negotiations. And we should note that the Russians still have the potential to make hundreds of millions of dollars a day from oil and gas. As we know, Europe very concerned not to have that oil and gas uh, cut off. But people here have been telling us that they are no longer able to use things like Apple Pay and Google Pay. Now, I know that sounds like a small thing like, compared with hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue for Russia, but it does put pressure on ordinary people's lives. The question is, is President Putin even listening, Savannah? Absolutely. It's that combination of those ordinary people 
and those oligarchs. Kier, thank you so much. Let's bring in Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. He's the former commanding general of the U.S. Army Europe and is now the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Policy Analysis. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start with your reaction to what we heard from Kier, what we're hearing from our colleagues at NBC News. U.S. officials say that Putin is lashing out, could escalate violence in Ukraine, a fear he's going to double down. How concerned are you about what we're going to see in the next few days? Well, I have to say, I've, I've been impressed with Kier. I've, I've been listening to him for quite a few days now, and the reporting he does from Moscow is really uh, very helpful, frankly. Um, I think uh, Ambassador McFaul um, was on target when he said that, you know, this is when you have an autocrat uh, who becomes detached over time. Um, I suspect there is a, a bubble around him and that he's not the kind of guy that seems open to pushback or counter uh counter opinions to what he wants to do, that's, this makes it dangerous. So I think that uh, we've got to continue doing exactly what we are doing. I think that the uh, Biden administration has done a very good job here bringing along our allies, working with our allies. Um, we need to uh, increase as much as possible support to Ukraine. Um, but also, I think we could do better at the information effort inside Russia. Uh, I don't think many Russians actually truly understand what's going on, why their soldiers are in Ukraine. So maybe uh, some uh, more effort there to help them understand what's happening and, and create more pressure inside Russia. Let's shift now to this international response. And we're lucky to have you with us as an expert on European policy. We're seeing these major shifts from countries like Germany, like Sweden, like Switzerland, either committing to send weapons or, you know, not having that neutrality stance anymore. Help our viewers understand why that's such a big deal. What does that mean for the international community going forward, especially if people are thinking, why aren't we doing more to help Ukraine? Explain these big moves and if you think that it is having any impact on Russia and, and potentially ending this invasion. Well, uh, first of all, the, the fact that so many nations of the world are uh, in agreement on this uh, changes the narrative completely away from what the Kremlin would like to have their fairy tale that somehow it's the fault of the West that they've been encircled that there is that we are the aggressor the fact that almost every nation in the world uh, agrees with what the West is doing now is very very powerful and that's what has enabled nations like Germany the key in Europe to um, change policy both in terms of not only their own defense spending but the willingness to uh, join the sanctions. And when Germany joins, that means most of the European Union comes along, and, which is the critical part, I think, for these sanctions to work. And it also um, reinforces the notion that there are things that are more important than the price of gas. And for sure, it's going to be painful for all of us on price of gas and, and other uh, side effects of these sanctions. But the idea that uh, sovereignty of nations, that the desire for people to want to be free uh, that in, in this day and age, two or three big countries don't get to decide the foreign policy of all the smaller countries. Th this is why uh, this is important. Voters in the state of Texas are heading to the polls today for the first primary election of the 2022 midterms. There's a lot on the line as voters cast their ballots for both local and national races. Joining us now with a preview of what we can expect is NBC News senior political editor Mark Murray. Mark, good morning. Thanks for being with us. So, I mean, this is one of the first big opportunities to get this temperature check of voters, midterms. What are some of the races we should be watching out for in Texas and some that maybe will have national implications? 
Yeah, Savannah, the one at the very top of the list is uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, is facing a Republican primary challenge from his right. And uh, the expectation is that, uh, the, that he will be able to exceed the 50% needed to avoid a runoff, and he is getting a challenge. There's even a more competitive race for attorney general on the Republican side, where incumbent uh, 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 Ken Paxton, who has received an endorsement from uh, former President Trump, is getting primary from uh, the likes of George P. Bush, that is Jeb Bush's son, as well as Louis Gomers, a conservative Republican congressman from Texas. And then maybe my favorite race of all is a uh, congressional Democratic primary in South Texas between incumbent uh, Congressman uh, Henry Cuellar versus progressive Jessica Cisneros, just to see how much uh, uh, progressives are able to make gains in these primaries uh, starting in Texas and across the country, Savannah. Now, tell us about some of the issues that voters there are passionate about ahead of this primary. What are we going to see people telling us is the reason that they came out to the polls in Texas? It really runs the gamut. And again, I think it's very consistent with what a lot of national polls are telling us. And so obviously the economy and inflation, certainly the the situation with COVID. Uh, And, uh, you know, all of a sudden, and and I know we're talking about the situation in Ukraine, and that will be a focus on President Biden's State of the Union address, but it will be interesting to see how that kind of trickles into the midterm matrix. Absolutely, especially with as much attention as there is on it. Now, Mark, we've been talking, of course, about the new restrictive election law in Texas. We're going to see that firsthand today, the differences that it's made. How much of an impact will it have on the primary? Tell us what types of things have been changed. Yeah, it remains to be seen on this primary. There has been controversy because there were new requirements for mail-in ballots that they actually had to have people's uh, driver's license number to be able to match with your ballot. And that ended up resulting in a lot of early mail-in ballots getting rejected, but still with the ability to people to fix uh, the ballots. It is worth noting that Texas has historically been a really poor mail-in ballot state, only allowing that for people who are senior citizens as well as disabled Texans. Uh, But we are going to be watching just to see how many people's ballots ended up getting affected and whether they were able to get fixed uh, uh, days earlier. All right, Mark Murray, thank you so much. All right, guys, if you've been injured in a car,